keep the false teachers away. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we gaze in wonder today at your marvelous works of salvation and redemption and at your radiant glory, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is my prayer for our church, that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him so that we, the eyes of our heart, having been enlightened, will know what the hope of your calling is, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing power, the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you hear mention of the five solas, so let's start with a little review. What are the five solas? They're five phrases in Latin that were introduced many years after the Reformation. They weren't themselves created by the Reformers, but they well sum up five head points that they recovered from Scripture that led the professing Church of Jesus Christ out of the darkness of error cast by the Roman Catholic Church. They well summarize the points of biblical truth that separate Roman Catholicism from biblical faith, that separate truth from error. They did that then, they still do that now. It still works the same for us in a day where we greatly need to separate truth from error. Today we will see the five solas in Ephesians chapter 2 as one of many places in Scripture where we can find them. And I, I bet that as you uh, read Ephesians 2 looking for them, you said, okay, here it is. No, here it is too. Wait, it's here too. Yes, it's all over the chapter. It's all over the first chapter. It's all over the place. But we're going to focus on Ephesians 2 today. And I'm not going to use the, there is a traditional order to the solas, but I'm going to go by the order uh, of the text of, of Ephesians chapter 2 and select just one focal verse for each solo, which is very hard. Uh, and I'll spend most of the time on the first and the last of the five, less time on the middle three. You'll see as we go on, or at least that's my intent that you'll see as we go on why we do it that way. So number one then, we'll spend the longest on sola gratia. That is how you say it in Latin, sola gratia, by grace alone. And the verse I'm taking is Ephesians 2.5, just using the Legacy Standard Bible. You should have your Bible open there. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the trouble with those words is they are so familiar, so familiar like this whole chapter that I think a great many Christians just don't hear the dynamic truths that are in this chapter that would cause them to change their mind about some issues if we all listen. And so that's my, that's my aim today. Look very close to make sure we get exactly what Paul uh, is showing us here. So in each, first we'll consider what the error of the, the error that is countered by this truth is. Uh, 
it's a great error, and, and, and I, I was taught this as a young Christian, I would have said this, that um, Mormons don't believe in salvation by grace, or that Roman Catholics don't, or that Jehovah's Witnesses don't. Well, that's not true, really. They all would say they believe in salvation by grace. I mean, it is right there in the Bible. So they'd all say that. They'd all say they believe in salvation by grace. But in their view of grace, it's salvation by grace and. Grace plus. For instance, in Roman Catholicism, when they sprinkle that, little wa- that water on that little baby's head and they say the right words by the right person in the right setting, they think that washes away the baby's sin and imparts a certain amount of grace, grace like a substance into that baby. But then that baby, as he grows, he needs to develop that grace. He needs to work at that grace. And the church has uh, sacraments that impart more grace and feed that substance in him of grace. And he's got to work at that grace and develop into a righteousness that God will ultimately declare that he's righteous because of the righteousness in him. The righteousness that he's worked cooperating with God and with the bit of grace that God gave him to improve, to develop, you know, kind of like being given a plot of land with nothing on it, and then you've got to work it and plant it, and you've got to build things on it. Well, that's a little like what it is here in in their view of grace. And, And the Mormons say that we're saved by grace after all that we can do. And so each one finds a way of saying grace, but always adding human effort, adding human works, adding the things that their particular cult needs to give. You need to have these people to give you the things you wouldn't get from the Bible. And so the watershed here between error and truth is the same for all five of these. It's the same word for all five. And what's that word? Sola or alone. The difference between truth and error is the difference between believing that you're saved by grace or believing that you're saved by grace alone. And that's what the Bible teaches. So let's talk about God's truth. Obviously, in each case, I'll spend more time on the truth than on the error. And in a nutshell, I just want to point out to you, look at the verse. This is something God does for dead people. Okay, now where all the cults fall down and Christian false teaching falls down, and I wouldn't be surprised if some had come here to this church holding this idea, that the difference is, is this grace that can do something for a dead person? That the understanding of the biblical understanding of God's grace is it something he does for dead people. And just as a spoiler or or, uh, looking forward, how much do you ask of a dead people, a dead person? How much do you expect of a dead person? How much does a dead person contribute to, well, any endeavor? <laughs> oh, that's, that kind of sets our minds, or it should, to understand it, if we're willing to, to understand what it is that Paul is setting forth here. So what is grace? Grace, in Paul's mind, and in, in the Bible, grace is God's free giving of himself. It's, it's his free, effectual, sovereign giving. Now, each of those words strikes a hammer blow at error. It's free. It's not triggered by something in us. It's effectual. He doesn't try to save people. It is sovereign. He saves as a Lord, not as a beggar. Who he sets out to save, he saves, and he saves by grace. It's undeserved. There's nothing at any point that we do to merit this grace. And it is God's self-giving. It's not something that involves our self-giving. Uh, We don't do anything to bring this grace out of God. So, biblically, it is alone, which is to say it's unearned, it's unsolicited by anything in us, 
And then a great many minds just get to work trying to find some way they can't shoehorn in something that we contribute to this. And we should just be warned at the outset, all such efforts are in error. All such efforts are in vain. And all such efforts really strike at the glory of God as Scripture sets him forth. So the Bible teaches that man only ever has been saved by grace alone that man only is now saved by grace alone and that he only ever will be saved by grace alone. This is not something that has changed, is changing, or will change. That's the description. So now uh, let's look together at a decade of proofs. And when you see that, you think, my, this is going to be a long sermon. Well, we just think decade uh, in terms of years, just like we think dozen in terms of eggs. But a dozen just means 12-somethings, and a decade just means 10-somethings. In this case, it means 10 proofs, 10 points about grace-saved saints. By the way, how y'all doing? You, you okay? You're just very quiet, but you're feeling fine, right? Everybody, thumbs up? All right, all lights green? Excellent. All right, so a decade of proofs. Number one, these grace-saved saints were dead. <laughs> Now, honestly, if we understood this, I could just stop there. That should say it. I never cease to boggle at people who find ways to get a dead guy to give something for his salvation, like his free will, his decision, his faith. He brings these things to the mind of a great many Christians. I'm talking about Christians, not cultists in this case. And you just want to say each time you hear it, but dead, (laughs) but dead. I mean, honestly, let me ask you again. I know I've asked this before, but you find as a preacher that just because you say something one time, everybody doesn't always get it necessarily. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? Uh, And so I just say again, if Paul had wanted to find a way of describing us as being absolutely incapable of bringing anything to our salvation, what would have been a good word to pick? I'm thinking dead. I can't think of a better word. Dead. They were dead. The people God is spoken of as having saved by grace alone here were dead, and they were dead in their transgressions and sins. Now, they're dead in an interesting way. In this case, dead doesn't mean inactive. They're active. They're dead in these transgressions and sins in which they walk. So they're active. So in what sense are they dead? Well, they're dead towards God. They're dead in every way towards God. Are they dead towards sin? No, that's where they live. Are they dead towards the devil in the world? No, that's where they live. Are they dead towards the flesh? No, that's where they live. Towards that, they're very alive, if you want to call that life. The Bible doesn't. It's activity, it's existence, but it's not what the Bible calls life. They are dead. They're deprived of any positive thing towards God. The Bible exhausts vocabulary and imagery in how it picks that. They, they, there's no fear of God before, our eyes, before their eyes, we read. There's none who seeks God, no, not one, we read. There's none who does righteousness, no, not one. Altogether they've gone aside, and so forth and so on. Heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, and on and on. They do not submit to the law of God. They cannot submit to the law of God. They're hostile towards God. Dead. Dead, dead, dead. We've got to get that or we won't understand anything about what Paul is teaching us here. They were dead. That's everything. But there's more. There's nine more. 
They also had wills dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, a great many people may be here for the first time would just be wanting to scream at me, but what about free will? Well, let's talk about the will. Paul talks about the will. What does he say about the will? He says that the will is dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, a great many people go wrong about free will because they don't define it. They don't even ask, what does it mean biblically? What is the will? Like it's this self-existent power out there attached to nothing that just makes decisions. But it's not. In the Bible, it's not. The will is just the heart making choices. And what does the Bible say about the heart? Does it say it's free? Well, let's just read these verse, this verse again. These verses, verses 2 uh, and 3a. Uh, the verse we're using is Ephesians 2.5. That was with Roman numeral 1, if I didn't say, in, in case I didn't say it. What does Paul say? He says, transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to. Now don't skip over that. What is according to? It means you were in lockstep with this. You were straight in line with this. So lockstep with what? What does Paul say? You were in lockstep with the course of this world, literally the age of this world, the whole mindset and thinking apart from Christ. We were in lockstep with the world, in lockstep with the ruler of the power of the air. Who's that? The devil. So there's the world, the devil. Gee, there's one more thing in that trilogy we usually think. Is that in this verse? He says, the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom, all, uh, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Well, there's the, there's the trio right there. The world, the devil, and the flesh. And in each case, uh, we, are, we are in lockstep with it. And look at the third more closely. We all formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires or the wills. That's just the Greek noun for will, thelema. The wills, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So what is the will of man apart from the sovereign, free, saving grace of God? It is dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It, what the world loves, it loves. What the flesh wants, it wants. What the devil thinks, it thinks. That's the natural state of the, of the will of man because it's the natural state of the heart of man. It is dominated by these things, Paul says. We walked in them. We walked according to them. They were our rule of life. So let me just pause and ask you, if you were one of these, to anyone who is or was one of these who tries to find something in man that responds to the gospel all by ourselves, where's that going to come from? So you're dead but you're not just dead. You're in lockstep with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is what you will. So how do you create in something that, in that that is alive and not dominated by those things apart from God, out of yourself? Hmm. But wait, there's eight more. Number three, the people saved by grace alone were by nature destined for wrath. By nature destined for wrath. Verse 3 says, they were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, what it means by nature is it means that this is what we were born as. This is what we naturally uh, 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 receive from our parents. The, our, our nature is to be children of wrath. And what children of wrath, the Greek grammar there, the idea is wrath is what we are destined for. That it's where we're heading. It's what we're marked for. You could say we're doomed for it. It's, it's where our life is taking us. It's taking us towards wrath. And what wrath is that? 
Well, that's the wrath of God. Yes, that's right. And this is by nature. Now, again, if you're going to find something in man that will respond to the gospel and receive Christ and decide for Christ and all that, well, it's got to not come from his nature, right? Because what do we read here? By nature, we're children of wrath. What we are, here's a way of paraphrasing it, what they were, what they naturally were, their very being is destined for the wrath of God. And where do you find in that life towards God if it comes from that? Fourth, these who are saved by grace, these grace-saved saints, despite all, were objects of the great love of our mercy-rich God. Despite all, they were objects of the great love of our mercy-rich God. Notice how Paul says, he says, but God, so here's one of these wonderful shifts, but God, all this about us, dead, doomed, and uh, uh, dominated, despite that, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, have you ever really bathed in that? I mean, that is, that is a deep, dynamic statement. Where do you find in this anything about us or our response to the gospel or anything about us? What, where do you, now, and this is the perversity of human nature. We always find ourselves everywhere, right? I mean, people even find themselves in, in the gospel that it just shows how great we are and how, how much we deserve God's love. And uh, <laughs> how you do that, that's some gymnastics there. We always see ourselves everywhere. Well, where do you find us in, in, in this verse? I'll, I'll tell you where we find us. We find us as simply objects of God's love. Doing not one thing to deserve it, not, doing what, not one thing to draw it, not one thing to do anything except be objects of it and Paul traces the whole cause of that to God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And we, well, we contributing nothing because we're dead and we're dominated and we're destined for wrath. So this is all from God. It is all from God. Number five, these uh, grace-saved saints while deservedly dead, were made alive. And you say, brother, get off the dead thing. You know, you already said that. And to which I say, friend, tell Paul that. Because he says it again. Because he, he must have thought that Christians just wouldn't really believe he meant it. And you know what? He would have been right. So he says it again. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Don't forget this. This is the necessary backdrop of understanding the greatness of what God does. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, which we commit, God made us alive together with Christ. Now, I just sort of cheated. Let me read it as it is. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So let me ask you a grammatical question. Who is the object of the verb made us alive together? In other words, who made us alive? God, with the help of, well, I'd like to know who could help him, because the people who receive it are, what's the word? Dead. Well, not us. He, in fact, until he made us alive together, what were we? Well, we were dead. So how did we assist him? How did we receive it? How did we agree to it? How did we do anything to make it, make it okay for him to do this act? We can't have, because we were What's the word? 
we were dead. So this is something that he does, he alone does. He does as a sovereign. He does freely, he does effectually. We're saved by his grace alone when deservedly dead. He made us alive together with Christ, with Christ. With Christ who did what with our help? Well, with our help, he was crucified. That's, that's, we did help that. Our, our sins were laid on him, and uh, it was representatives of us that condemned him and that nailed him to the cross. So yeah, that part we helped with. What about the, the giving life part? Well, we had no part in that whatsoever. He raised himself, the Father raised him. Again, a work of God. And that's the kind of life I receive. A life that is the work of God, I receive by an act of God, and I receive it when I'm dead. Number six, these uh, grace-saved saints, indeed while doomed, were graciously saved. Were graciously saved. Chapter 2, verse 5b, by grace you have been saved. Now, where do I get that they were doomed in that verse? By the fact that they were saved. What kind of people are saved? Hey, uh, John Rother, let me come save you. John says, no, I'm good. (laughs) He's fine. He's good. He doesn't need any saving right now. So if, if, so, and notice the, the, the words that Paul does not use. He does not say, by grace, you've been given a good example to follow. He doesn't say, by grace, you've been helped, helped to be better people. He doesn't say, by grace, you've been partly enabled or given a little life. He doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't say, by grace, you've been given a second chance. As you know what we do with a second chance? We'd have a second fall, <laughs> if that's all we got. What, what does he say? By grace, you've been saved. What is saved a picture? Why does he pick that word? What kind of person saved? A, a dead person, thank you. Yeah, you're, you're getting it. Very, very good. A dead person, a person in desperate need, a helpless person, a hopeless person, a resourceless person. And I say again, Christians get to work really hard to, to figure out how fallen man has some resources and some abilities and uh, that's not in the word saved. It's not, it's not people with resources who need saving. It's people with no resources. It's people who are lost and hopeless and helpless. And that's just what he says he does to us. And this is why it insults the natural man. I mean, again, Christians have worked real hard to make a gospel that's not so insulting. But a gospel that's not so insulting is also a gospel that's not so saving. Because the real gospel is insulting. It, it's offensive. It makes natural man mad because one of the things it says to him is you cannot do one thing to save yourself. You entirely need the grace of God. You entirely need the work of Jesus Christ. So, uh, these grace-saved saints, while doomed, were graciously saved. These grace-saved saints, number seven, while down, were raised on high by God in Christ. 2.6 that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if he raised me up with Christ and seated me with him in the heavenly places in Christ, where was I before? I was down in the world. I was in that world which the Apostle John tells us lies in the wicked one, lies in the grasp of the wicked one. I was there. And, And what was my position in that world? Go back up to the opening verses of the chapter. 
lockstep. Remember? Lockstep. I walked in lockstep with the, with the age of this world. I walked in lockstep with the ruler of darkness. I walked in lockstep with the fallen desires of my flesh. That's where I was. And yet God, by grace, comes down to where I am. Now what good would a gospel be that says, all right, you come up here and you can have life. Imagine walking yourself into a, a county morgue with all those bodies on slabs saying, I have great news for you stiffs. Uh, I have this potion. If you drink it, you can be alive. All you have to do is reach out and take it of your own free will. Just reach out and take it, you say. How many customers would you have? Let's see. Zero minus zero. Take away the zero. You'd have zero. Why? Because what's their problem? (laughs) There you go. And the gospel is for dead people. And a gospel that depends on me producing something, that's not going to save anybody. But it's not the gospel that the Bible presents to us. That's my point. While down, we're raised up on high by God in Christ. Number eight, these grace-saved saints were made everlasting displays of God's kind grace in Christ. Verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, if our understanding leaves something in us that contribute to this, then we're not these displays. These displays show only the surpassing riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. Now, there's several ways of saying the same thing. It's His grace, so it's, it's freely given by Him. It's kindness, so it's undeserved. And it's in Christ Jesus, meaning He did all the work. He did all the heavy lifting, you might say, and He also did all the light lifting. He did all the lifting, although... Really, there was no light lifting. It was all heavy lifting. And he did it all. So it all rests on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Uh, They were made everlasting displays of God's kind grace. I I like the expression, trophies of grace. Although sometimes Reformed people will say, well, this one particularly is a trophy of grace, or that one particularly is a trophy of grace, which to me is kind of a Reformed way of saying, saint someone, saint someone. Well, all Christians are saints, And what else are all Christians? Trophies of grace. Every last one. And it takes more grace and power to make one saint than it did the universe. You know? Because the universe was something was made out of nothing. In conversion, something is made into its opposite. So, everlasting displays of God's kind grace in Christ. Number nine, these grace-saved saints donate absolutely nothing to their own salvation. They donate absolutely nothing to their own salvation. And, you know, we have the, again, we have the, the obstacle that these words are so familiar that I think a great many Christians think, yep, I get these words, I believe them, and they don't really do either, so we're going to take another swipe at it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Now I'm going to ask rhetorical questions. Please bless you or whatever is appropriate. Um, please don't answer these questions. As always, I don't want to embarrass anybody. So these are rhetorical questions. What is it that's the gift of God? What is the gift of God? Well, some, some people would say grace is the gift of God. Okay, that's, 
real unlikely for a couple of reasons. For one thing, how do I say this real simply? If you know Spanish, you already got a leg up. In Spanish, all nouns have gender. They're, they're mas- masculine or they're feminine. So, la mano. Now, that's a feminine word, even though it's a masculine hand. So, it may or may not mean something that's masculine or feminine, but they all have gender. Greek has a third gender, the neuter gender, which is neither masculine nor feminine. The pronoun, um, yeah, the demonstrative pronoun here, this, is a neuter pronoun, this thing, it says. But the word grace is a feminine noun. And most naturally, they would agree this would be feminine if it was talking about grace. Not necessarily, uh, but most naturally. However, that just would be so redundant. I mean, it just would, it would not make any sense. What is grace? Well, grace is a gift. Why would you say grace is, is a gift of God and it's not of works? Well, of course it isn't. That, that, it doesn't even need to be said. So perhaps he's saying faith is a gift of God. Now that is possible, even though faith is also a feminine noun. But as I've said, it's not too uncommon in Greek to have the neuter refer to a feminine. So it could be faith. But it makes better sense, and Paul does this a number of times, to think that the this just refers to the whole package and every part of it. In other words, when he says this is a gift of God, is he saying this grace, this faith, or this salvation? And the answer is yes, the whole thing and every part is a gift from God. So the whole thing about being saved by grace through faith, that's a gift of God, including the fact that the grace is a gift of God, the faith is a gift of God, and the resultant salvation is a gift of God. It's all a gift of God. It would be absolutely perverse to say, yes, the whole thing is a gift of God, except, of course, the faith, that's the part that I bring to it. But, but that's not really a work. It's okay. It just comes from me. Uh, but it's not a work, so it doesn't contradict. Well, wait a minute. He just said the whole thing's a gift for God. Why are you trying to get yourself into this? How, how did a dead person do that? How did a God-hater do that? How does somebody who loves the world, the flesh, and the devil say, yes, I'm going to submit myself to the gospel of God from himself? No, the whole thing is a gift of God who made us alive. (laughs) He made us alive. He didn't show us how to make ourselves alive. He made us alive. And as part of that, the whole package of being saved by grace through faith, all of that is a gift of God. The whole and each part. So only thus, only if you agree with what Paul is saying, can you say they donate absolutely nothing. And I I didn't choose that word just because it starts with a D, although that too. But I chose it because donate meaning something that comes from me, something that I bring. And to a great many Christians, that's faith. It's it's okay because it's, it's not meritorious, it's not a work, so it's okay. But it does come from me. It's something I bring. And this is exactly what Paul is at great lengths to deny, that I don't bring anything any more than you stop and think about it. Again, how would I, since faith involves understanding the gospel, believing it's true, and resting on it? Resting on a gospel that says Jesus is Lord and I'm not, and that I need to be saved because I'm guilty and helpless. How's that Genesis 3 thinking? It's not. How's that being in lockstep with the world, the flesh, and the devil? It's not. That's never going to come from me. It can only come from a gift of God. And that's Paul exactly says here, what he says exactly here. 
By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And then tenth, these grace-saved saints derive their very existence as believers from God's creative power. Now, I could almost just rest the whole case on just the first and the last, if we think about it. They derive their very existence as believers from God's creative power. So what does Paul say? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Now look at those first two words, uh, a noun and a participle in Greek. We're His workmanship. Uh, Very simply, it's the word, it's poema. We get poem from that, but don't think poem. A poem is just something somebody makes. It's something somebody does. And Paul says, that's what we are. We're something God made. It's something that he did. In my translation, I translated it, we're his doing. So wait a minute, but, but many Christians think, well, I do something, I believe. But Paul says, no, I'm his doing. He's not my doing. Salvation is not my doing. Salvation is not a result of anything I do. I am his doing. So you see this understanding that puts me in the, in, the, in the pilot seat turns on its head, verse 10, which says, I'm his doing. It's not like he's, oh, he'd love to save me, but I've got to say the magic word. I've got to do the secret gesture and so forth. And he's just waiting for me to do that. And then when I do that, he say, no, what does Paul say? I'm his doing. Now, do I believe? Yes, I do. Do I repent? Absolutely. Do I decide for Christ? Yeah, or I don't go to heaven. Absolutely. How do I do that? as a gift, when he makes me alive by his doing. Listen, faith is not how I get God to save me. Faith is how God saves me. My faith is not how I get him to give me eternal life. Faith is a result of the eternal life he gives me. How do you know a person's been born again? John says, by when he believes, 1 John 5. Faith is a sign of being born again, not the cause of being born again. And faith is not how I get eternal life from God. Faith is, is a fruit of the eternal life God gives me. So, I'm his doing, and then there's, I, there's another word too. What's the next one? Created in Christ Jesus. So what did I do with creating myself? Um, nothing. Nothing at all. I, I am passive in that. I'm a recipient of that act. And who does the creating? If, if he says, we're his, men, his workmanship created, so who works me and who creates me? God does. In Christ Jesus, so once again, entirely dependent on what he's done for good works, and these good works are the result of his work in me, his gracious work in me. So, you know, I, I would hope that's all clear and convincing. Just to, to, I can work on the clear part maybe with a little illustration. I hope will be helpful. And for this illustration, Joe wondering, I will bring out my two Spurgeon bobbleheads. I have two Spurgeon bobbleheads for a, well, one is more bobbly than the other, it looks like, uh, for a particular reason. I've got two Spurgeon bobbleheads. They are 
let's say, identical in every way. I, I want you to think of them as people. So these are identical twins. We're going to name them um, Bubba Jean and Buford, let's say. Don't, don't think of them as Spurgeon, though they are. Bubba Jean and Buford. So Bubba Jean and Buford are identical twins. They're raised the same way, live basically the same life, very similar temperaments. Bubba Jean and Buford uh, do the same things together. They get drunk together. They go wild together. They commit petty crimes together. They do all sorts of stuff together. But one day, they go together in, in the same car to a Bible-teaching church. Now, don't even, you don't even ask what got them there. Just for some reason, there they are. And while they're there, there they hear Christ preached. They hear the gospel preached faithfully, passionately, truly. They hear the gospel. Both of them hear the gospel. Hope I'm not forgetting the order, but Bubba Jean here, as he listens to it, well, he, he hears very little, but what he hears is just, he sees nothing in it for him. He just sees nothing in it for him. It's not offering him anything that he wants out of life. It's not, there's nothing attractive or compelling about Christ or about the gospel. He may feel a little tug of guilt. He may feel a slight a passing sense of alarm, but he waits them out and they pass. And by the end of the service, he's completely uh, unmoved. But Buford here, hearing the exact same sermon, is just nailed to his pew. It is as if the preacher knew everything about him and he's talking directly to him. And he, as he speaks about the righteousness of God, he feels himself standing before the throne of God. And as he feel, talks about sin, he sees his sins. He sees all the things he's done and thought and been all his life. And as he talks about God's judgment, he sees himself as, as deserving that judgment and as doomed to that judgment. And then when he speaks of Christ and what Christ has come and done for sinners, he sees the glory and the wonder of Christ. He sees the marvelousness of the work of Christ. He sees just what a perfect Savior he is. And he realizes this is exactly what he needs exactly what he needs and he yearns for that life in Christ he yearns for that forgiveness he yearns to be reconciled with God and when the preacher says Christ calls sinners to come do you hear his voice calling he says in his heart yes I do he hears Christ calling him through the gospel and when the preacher bows his head for people to pray he calls out to Christ to be his savior he looks to Christ alone he repents of his sin. He looks to Jesus. He thanks God for the life he's gotten in Jesus. And so they both walk out, not saying a word to their cars. He's hoping to talk to his brother about it. But on the way home, they get involved in a terrible accident and both of them die. Both of them die. And this is Bubba Jean, right? Bubba Jean dies once and immediately comes to the judgment of God and immediately finds himself under the torment of God. And Buford finds himself in the presence of Christ. He finds himself with Christ, which is much better. Now my question, which I want you not to answer out loud, is in the final analysis, why? They both heard the same gospel. They both heard the same sermon. Why did one not... Why did... I want to put it this way. Why did one go to eternal punishment... And why did one go to heaven to be with Christ? Well, let's start with Bubba Jean. If your answer to that question starts out with the words, because he, you're giving a biblical answer. 
because he hated God, because he loved sin, because he loved his flesh. He loved trying to be God. He hated the gospel. He hated Christ. He had no interest in it. He was dead to it. He had no interest in it. He saw nothing for himself. That's why. But why did he go to be with Christ? And if your answer starts with the words, because he, you're on the wrong track. If you say, because he accepted Christ, that's what he did, but why did he? And he didn't. Where did that come from? Well, because he had positive volition towards God. Did he? The Bible says there's no such thing in ourselves naturally. Well, because he decided, he used his free, well, he had the same free will his brother did, which, as we've seen, is, is uh, absolutely dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he's dead to God. So where did that come from? Because he, well, because he nothing. The right answer starts with the words, because God. Because God, as Ephesians 1.4 says, elected him to be in Christ and predestined him to be adopted as a son through Jesus Christ. Because, as Ephesians 2 says, because God made him alive together with Christ, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which God loved Bob, um, Buford. You see? So any other answer than that, any answer that doesn't start with because God denies sola gratia. So, a great many Christians would absolutely say, and they believe sincerely, that they believe in sola gratia, but they really don't. Because, look here, what am I talking about? Well, you say, oh, but, but God did everything he could for both of them. God, you know, equally Jesus died for both of them, gave the gospel to both of them. God did everything, but then it was up to them. Well, okay, so then it was up to them. So, he got himself saved, so that's glory to him. And you say, no, no, no. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Well, I know it's not what you want to say, but it is what you're saying. So let's try it again. You say, well, no, okay, okay, God doesn't just leave it up to everybody. God kind of helps everybody. He gives everybody some grace, but they've got to act on it. Okay, like, so he makes everybody a little bit alive? What is, how does that work out? <laughs> you're alive or you're dead. That's a toggle switch. <laughs> there aren't degrees of either one. So you say, well, he gives everybody a little help. Okay, let me grant that. I don't believe it. Uh, in this way, I don't believe it, but let's grant it. But still, what closes the gap is something that comes from him, not from God. That Jesus didn't actually save anybody on the cross in this thinking, and God doesn't actually save anybody. He just offers it to everybody, but it's really him. And so when he gets to heaven, of the two of them, the one that supplied the thing that got him to heaven, well, that's him. And so forget sola gratia, because he did the thing that got him into heaven. So better to just stick with what Paul says and what he presents. It's all by grace. Being saved by grace through faith is all a gift of God. Sola gratia, say it and mean it. So as I say, the next three will be more briefly in because they really grow out of this. Number two, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's in many verses in Ephesians. Verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is his uh, saving us by grace, raising us up, giving us life, so that 
He'll show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So now nobody would deny that it's to the glory of God, uh, but they would deny that it's the glory of God alone. However, a great many who would say, no, no, I believe that, they're really only giving it lip service. Every system that doesn't believe in sovereign grace, every system that doesn't believe in God's free and effectual grace doesn't give glory to God alone because there's a part I have to bring that's all me, that comes from me. Say it's non-meritorious, say whatever you want. The bottom line is it has to come with me or I'm not going to heaven. It's not something God does. It's something I do. And so there's no glory to God alone in that understanding. So what is God's truth, letter B? Simply put, God ends up with all glory only when God is given all credit. That's simple, but I hope it's clarifying. I know simple things sure help me. God ends up with all glory only when God is given all credit. And some people work awful hard to find a way to give God all the glory, but keep some of the credit for us. But no, he only gets all the glory when he gets all the credit, which is what we've been talking about. Think of how Paul paints the work of God. Think of how he paints God's work in eternity. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse uh, 4. Just as he chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world. Now, what did I contribute to this before creation? I did contributed nothing. He chose me that I would be holy and blameless before him in love. So as he viewed me, he viewed me as a sinner and guilty to be holy and blameless. By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved see all the doing of god and do you notice that tied up in here are things that i do for instance uh he predestined us to adoption as sons through jesus christ but how do i become a son of god well galatians 3:26 says you're all sons of god through faith in christ jesus galatians 3:26 and uh, 1 Corinthians 12.3 says it's only by the Spirit of God that I can say Jesus is Lord. So I become a son of God by faith, and I can only have faith by the Spirit of God. No man can say Jesus as, is Lord but by the Spirit of God. Now that can only mean the Spirit of God is already in this person, not that he gets the Spirit of God by saying it, because Paul says you can't say it without the Spirit of God in you. So, I'm adopted by faith, and this faith is a gift of God. You see, it's very straightforward. When God predestined that something's going to happen, he predestines all the means to that event. And when he predestines a person to be adopted as a son, he's predestining that person to saving faith as well. And that's the only way verse 6 can be true. To the praise of the glory of his grace, not to the sharing of glory with us but solely his. Uh, Also chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. We've been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And I'm only to the praise of his glory if I'm the recipient of his grace, entirely the recipient of his grace. He only gets all the glory 
when he gets all the credit. That's from eternity, and then in totality. I mean, that's that's a refrain in Ephesians 1, isn't it? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly. He didn't offer them to us. He blessed us with them. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graced us with in the Beloved. Verse 12, to the end that we who first hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So it's like the verse we started the sermon with, the service with. Uh, Romans 11.36. What does Romans 11.36 say? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. This is the truth of the Bible. Sola gratia, soli Deo gloria. So in sum, God elects the unholy. He redeems the enslaved. He adopts the alienated. He gives life and saving faith to the dead and the distant. He does this. Every bit of this impossible for us. Every bit of this done by God alone. Only thus can every bit of glory go to God. What's the word? Alone. Number three, sola fide, through faith alone. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We've already talked about that, but let me just add these things. The obvious error is that faith must be supplemented by our works, that we receive it by faith and something else, such as uh, the sacraments and and uh, rituals and, and works that we've got to supplement it rather than simply receiving it by faith, which is what the Bible teaches. That's the obvious error. The subtler error is the one I've been trying to uh, give a hydraulic blast to, the error that, that the faith somehow is something that I bring and I contribute. It is something that I do, but I do it by grace alone, and I do it to the glory of God alone. It's something God does in saving me, not something I do to get him to save me. So uh, God's truth, then, you just review everything we've talked about it uh, in the previous. Faith is not a possibility for us left to ourselves. Yes, indeed, let me make sure everyone understands, without faith, no one will be saved. It is necessary to believe. It's a a gross and a silly error to say this, this viewpoint believes, well, you don't have to believe because you're elect. No, that's absolutely not even close to true. It's because you're elect that you will believe. <laughs> Election is why anybody ever believes. And it is necessary. And uh, uh, it's necessary that somebody uh, exercises faith, but that faith is a gift of, of God. It's a sovereign gift of God. We must believe. God doesn't believe for us. He doesn't believe instead of us. But he frees our heart from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He gives new life to us. We're born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. We're born again, and born again, we believe, and we repent, and we decide for Christ. So I want you to see this. To many evangelicals, one part of my salvation is mine. It's faith. And ironically, I mean, when you really think about it, that's the part that makes everything work. All, everything God has done has not yet saved me. None of that has saved me. Everything God's done hasn't saved me till I do my part. But... That's not what Paul teaches. That too is a gift from God. And so the glory is his alone. No man can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Spirit of God. And what does 1 Corinthians 1.30 say? 
Of His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Of His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who is caused to be wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast, what? In the Lord. It is of His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Sola fide, and that's a gift of God. Number four, solo Christo, or solus Christus, both ways are used. Uh, Solo Christo means by Christ alone or in Christ alone. In Christ alone, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. In Christ alone. Now the error is... Oh, anything that just views Christ as like a, an example or a teacher or a model or a substance or, or, or someone that we get parceled out to us through sacraments and through rituals. But he's, he's distant and far off. But what I need from him, I get through the sacraments. I get through human rituals, human doctrines, whatever. Or he's my example. He's, he's my model, and I'm supposed to try to follow him even though there's no personal involvement with Christ. That's all error. God's truth is, number one, all is done by Christ and all is found in Christ. It's just as simple. It's all done by Christ. It's all done, all found in Christ. It's all done by Christ. It's all found in Christ. What does Jesus say? Does he say, I show the way, the truth, and the life? I teach the way, the truth, and the life? What does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through admiring me, being taught by me. No, through me. And what does Paul say? There's only one mediator between God, and that was John 14, 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's only one mediator between God and man. Well, two. Christ Jesus and Mary. Right? Christ Jesus and Joseph. Christ Jesus and Joseph Smith. Christ Jesus and you. No, there's one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. So it's all in Christ, and there's all the spiritual, therefore, all the spiritual blessings we need are in Christ, and the only way to have them is to come to Christ. It's to have Christ. I love the way the Apostle John says it. I have since I was first saved. He who has the Son has the life. Just as simple as that. And then he goes on to say, he who does not have the Son of God will not see life. It is just as simple as that. Have Christ, have everything. Lack Christ, what you have you don't want. You've still got stuff, but it's not life, and it's not hope, and it's not joy. It's wrath and fury and judgment. So all is in Christ. To have him is to have all. And so if if I reach heaven and I've got a throne to throw, pardon me, if I reach heaven and I've got a crown to throw anywhere, I'm going to throw it and, every, and any jewels on it before the throne of God. It's all His. It's all by Him. It's all because of Him. This is the only way, only way that God's saving work can be by grace alone and through faith alone and to the glory of God alone is if it's in Christ alone. If God the Son has accomplished it. If He's where I find it. That's the only way that God alone and God's grace can uh, have all the glory it deserves and be received by faith alone. Uh, I receive it by faith because Jesus has paid it all. All to Him I owe. I receive it by faith because He's the one who said it is finished. I receive it by faith because He's the one who made the once for all sacrifice for sins. And so I just receive it by faith. There is nothing left for me to do. He's done it all. And even the faith by which I receive it is a gift of God. 
I, I want to say reverently, what a deal, right? I mean, what a deal. It's just the perversity of sin, or of, of sin that everybody wouldn't just run to that deal. But that is the perversity of sin. So it's in Christ alone, and then finally, sola scriptura, by Scripture alone. Ephesians 2.20, having been built, that's the church, the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, that word of can mean lots of things. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, I mean, like the same one that they have as a foundation, or it could mean that they're the foundation. But let me tell you, and I would encourage you to note it down, what I believe he's saying is they're built on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. They laid the foundation. And I'll show you a scripture that backs that up in just a second. But this is the foundation of the church, what was laid by the apostles and prophets, and that effectively to us is Scripture. But let me first talk about the error. What's the error? You'll, you'll hear this if you ever try to talk to Roman Catholics at all. They, they, they like to say that sola scriptura is not a biblical doctrine, because that's just so cute to say, that Scripture alone is not scriptural. But, but that's nonsense. It, it absolutely is scriptural. But what the Roman Catholics like to say is they like to say, but the, but the church gave us the Bible. <laughs> As if. So that's historically nonsense, but even aside from that, look at this verse. Is the church resting on the church? Is the foundation resting on the church? The church is resting on the foundation. Who laid the foundation? Popes and, and, and bishops? What do you read? Apostles and prophets. And where are they today? In heaven with Jesus. There's none on earth because the foundation has been laid. Are you with me? You're very quiet. Maybe I've just worn you out. That's possible. But I need to know you're with me. So their idea is the church gave the Scripture because the church said, yep, that's the Bible. And so that's the church giving us the Scripture. Well, then, then the church also created Jesus, right? Because the church made statements and creeds that, that talk about who Christ is. So that means they created Jesus? No, it just means that early councils made statements about what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And... Uh, finally, early councils recognized the, the books that are in Scripture, but the church didn't make Scripture. God made Scripture. So uh, another error, and this comes in many forms, is to say Scripture is very important in all sorts of flattering things, but it's not sufficient. In addition to Scripture, we need church councils and the rulings of popes. That's the Roman Catholic version. In addition to Scripture, we need the traditions of men, that's the Orthoborg version, the Greek Orthodox and Roman Orthodox version. In addition to Scripture, we need the ongoing semi-revelations from the Holy Spirit. That's the Charismatic version. In addition to Scripture, we need the latest insights of scholarship. That's the liberal version. But the biblical version is no, we just need Scripture alone. And I would say to you, everything I've said to you so far rests on Scripture alone. I've just been looking at Bible verses with you and talking about what they mean. Everything rests on Scripture. Apart from those Bible verses we'd look, we just looked at, what would I know about what we've been talking about for nearly an hour? None of it. Not a bit of it. It's, it's all from Scripture. In fact, I mean, to the degree that I'm faithful, anything of any importance I ever say here just comes from Scripture. And the other parts of the part you can just ignore. 
<laughs> but whatever, but I, so I try to make it so that I mostly say or only say what comes from Scripture. Because that's what the church rests on. So let me show you in God's truth two, two key Scriptures and talk about them a little bit. Those Scriptures are Matthew 16, 16 through 18. Now, we've studied that fairly recently. I'll just remind you about it. That's where Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, my Father revealed that to you. I'm going to build my church on that rock, meaning what he just said, the truth that an apostle spoke about Jesus Christ. He's going to build his church on that as a foundation, he says. And we see that borne out in 1 Corinthians 3, 10, and 11. 1 Corinthians 3, 10, and 11, where Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. So who's laying the, the foundation here in this verse? It's, I know it's obvious. Go ahead and say it. Paul, that's right. And what was Paul? Truck driver, brain surgeon, apostle. So an apostle laid the foundation. And then he goes on to say, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul laid the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, meaning the person of Jesus Christ? Well, how would Paul do that? Take Jesus down from heaven and, and build a church on Jesus? What does he mean when he says he laid the foundation of Jesus Christ? Same thing Peter did. The teaching and the confession of the truth about Jesus Christ. The church rests on that foundation that this apostle laid. Teaching them the truth about Jesus Christ. The Word of God, in other words. The church rests on the Word of God laid, in this case, by an apostle. And so that's why I say Ephesians 2.20, written by the same guy, it's the same idea. The church rests on the, apostle, the foundation laid by the prophets and apostles receive the Word of God, teach the Word of God. The church is built on that foundation. So in the context, the church is a, is a building that God is building. God the Holy Spirit is building this church and indwells it, makes it a, a, a sanctuary for worshiping God. And the foundation that it rests on is laid by the apostles and prophets. And the person of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that gives the shape to its all. His person lies at the, at the base of that foundation of the teaching of Christ, the Word of God. That's what the church rests on. So it's just in continuity with what's been happening in the Bible up to the New Testament. God speaks through his prophets. The people of God rest on the words of God. And now God sends his son who speaks the words of God and his apostles and prophets continue to speak the word of God. And the people of God rest on that as a, as a foundation. And that's it. That's it. Once the foundation is laid, you don't relay it. You don't expand it. It's just the foundation. So that's why the church must rest on Scripture alone, sola scriptura, because only Scripture is the foundation laid by God. Add traditions and teachings of men and dogmas and councils, as Martin Luther talked to you about last night, and you're just adding worthless dross and distraction and disaster. So we want to rest on the, on the foundation of Scripture alone. I, I think another in a way, this foundation is kind of like a boat <laughs> in that you're in a choppy, deadly sea and you want to stay in the boat. 
Well, you want to stay on this foundation. Why? Well, I can go to Matthew 7, couldn't I? The end of the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? The one who hears my words and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. Everything around it is deadly. It's got to be on the right foundation. The church has got to be on the right foundation. And that is Scripture alone. Scripture alone is sufficient. And Scripture alone grounds all the other solas. Why do we believe that we're saved by grace alone? Why do we believe that we're saved to the glory of God alone and that all must be done to the glory of God alone? Why do we believe that we receive this by faith alone? Why do we believe that this is accomplished and and made uh, real in Christ alone? This is all what we get from Scripture alone. And that needs to be our sole and sufficient foundation. So, these five watchwords, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solo Cristo, soli Deo gloria, these five watchwords each form a watershed of truth. What's a watershed? The water goes, at this point, the water goes one way or it goes another way. And these five words are all watersheds. Because from them, everything always either goes off towards error or it goes towards the kingdom of God. These are the watchwords that are watersheds. And so our response uh, as a church and individuals is crucial. We neglect these, we trivialize them, we think that they're unimportant uh, to the dulling of our own hearts and to the drifting of the church. But we believe in them and cling to them to the glory of God the safety of our soul, and the blessing of God's people. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word from your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you just for the, the glory of you and your salvation. And we just marvel at you. We marvel at your Son. We thank you so much for the work of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to these truths, who gives us life. Thank you for drawing us to Christ because uh, none can come to him except the Father who sent him draw him. And that we come to you is is just a, a gift of your grace, bespeaking your love and your mercy. And we thank you and we do give you all glory. And we love to worship you and we love to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we'll sing a, a last song. That